Taylor part? No. <laughs> no? Okay. Hey, guys. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. Um, uh, Simone recently uh, said no, but I would like to say yes to this being the next episode of our show. We're so excited uh, to be here. Sorry that we're a little bit late, but um, we're here and we are about to begin. I also want to say I'm working on my pronouns, so I'm trying to say hello, everyone, or y'all, or folks, instead of just guys. So please be patient with me on that. So everyone, it's great to see you. Um, I know today has been rough. It, it always seems like things happen the day of the podcast, which is kind of wild. But I guess in a way that's good because that lets us at least talk about it with a, a great degree of urgency. So let's just get right into it. Um, Breonna Taylor's decision, uh, the, the decision on the court case regarding her and her killing uh, was made today. La, sorry, Garrison, could you tell us a little bit about that and, and what that means? Actually, I'm going to pass it to my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll say a little something. So um, after what has been about six months of deliberation, investigations, um, supposed um, fullest, you know, prosecution, uh, fully fleshing things out. Um, today we received the decision um, from Kentucky's attorney general, uh, I believe Cam Dan Daniel, Daniel Cameron, um, and he basically shared that the detective. Um, uh, actually is going to be charged with a D-level felony, um, and which is the lowest level of felony in Kentucky, just so you know. And um, it is going to be wanton endangerment. Everyone else is not going to be charged. The other two officers will not be charged in Brianna's killing. Um, that was a grand jury decision that came down that they announced and so now we have to, you know, try to go from here and, and figure out what is next. Um, it's going to be a long road ahead. So uh, I do have a quick question. What does wanton endangerment mean just for the people that may not know? Yeah. So wanton endangerment um, is basically engaging in an action that can be dangerous to other people. Um, and so an example of that actually is pretty commonly used the shooting, right? If you shoot up in the air or if you shoot into a direction and there's a crowd of people standing there and somebody gets hurt, you'll be charged with, um, with wanton endangerment. Um, I will also add that the, um, the crime was, is not on behalf of Brianna. It's on behalf of the neighbors that were, um, endangered by the shooting that took place. They basically justified the entire encounter with Brianna and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, and said that this was where they landed, that they that at the very most, um, the detective that shot was endangering the neighbors. Okay. Thank you uh, so much, Simone, for that coverage. I, I, I have to say, I find it incredibly 
I would say surprising, but then again, I'm not at all surprised that the charge that end up uh, being brought or the charge that was divvied out, the justice that was divvied out, just like what Simone was saying, had absolutely nothing to do with what happened to Brianna. I think that is something that we all need to make sure, especially those that are watching, that we keep in mind that she was not served any kind of justice, that virtually that is what happened today. So guys, I know you probably have a lot of thoughts on the tip of your tongue. So I would love to hear what are your initial reactions to this ruling? I mean, I'll, yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in real quick and I'm still kind of processing my thoughts. I might have something to say after some other folks jump in, but um, yeah, I think the, the first thing that came to mind, um, and I'm trying to dive into the recesses of my law school brain because I'm not a criminal law expert like Simone, but I believe if I remember correctly, you know, the word wanton also speaks to like recklessness. So like another version of, of, of wanton crimes could be like reckless endangerment, essentially, is another word for that. And so it's just really... <laughs> It's really sobering that the conclusion essentially was they could not even conclude that the conduct of the officers recklessly endangered Brianna Taylor or her boyfriend. And Brianna Taylor was killed. But folks who survived this encounter in adjacent apartments, it was reckless for them to be endangered, their lives to be endangered. Yeah. But the taking of Breonna Taylor's life is ruled completely justifiable under these ridiculous circumstances. That's infuriating. I mean, that's just, just on the baseline without even going any further. The fact that it would have been better for them to have just said, we're not bringing any charges because that's what always happens, right? And I was kind of bracing for that. But for them to do this, not even like a half measure, it's almost like um, it's almost like a on the way out, like a middle finger to the fact that Breonna Taylor was killed. Because it's like, oh, no, these other people were recklessly endangered, but her and her boyfriend were not. And they were the targets of this um, no knock warrant at the wrong address. And, and their lives were most affected and endangered by the entire encounter. Um, so it was it's just crazy to think that that that's where they would land. I didn't even know I didn't even think of that to be a feasible option going into this. Uh, but of course, in the justice system, what you don't expect to happen um, in the line of, of of something just grotesque, that's the thing that's gonna happen. The second thing that I thought about, and I'm, I may be projecting forward here is I know that predictably, um, there's going to be a lot of talks in the wake of this as folks are frustrated and mad at what has happened and make demonstrations because of their frustration and, and rightfully so, in my opinion, there's gonna be all this talk about you know, riots and violence and all this other bull crap that always comes up in the, in the wake of these, these things happening. And you know, something struck me, it's been about a week or a week and a half that 
white conservatives in particular have been hounding LeBron James on social media regarding an incident where someone uh, shot, I believe it was one or two police officers in the LA area. And they've been shouting LeBron down. Why aren't you talking about that? Why, aren't, why haven't you said anything about this? And blah, 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 blah. And um, basically forcing him. And then finally today had to address the fact that I've never condoned violence. So like, I don't know why that keeps being brought up. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that when this unrest occurs in the wake of, you know, justice not being served, we never we would never make the leap to say that the people that continue to not fulfill their duty and do their job and exact justice in the face of injustice, they're never held accountable for the unrest that happens in the wake of their inaction or their misaction. You know, the, you, they, they, the focus is always on Black Lives Matter peaceful protesters who are trying to keep their communities from exploding into oblivion because people are so frustrated. And they're the only voices of reason largely in the wake of these incidents happening because people are just so done with it. Um, so any person who comes in and hijacks that peaceful situation and promulgates violence, it's gonna be the fault of people saying Black Lives Matter but these people who sit behind their positions and their cronyism and their badges and their legalese and find ways to not do what they've been put in place to do, nobody looks at them. They're, they're, they're never, nobody says, well, if you would have exacted justice, um, you know, all the conversations about the LA riots after Rodney King, how many of those conversations were about how that could have been prevented if, a jury seeing a video of a black dude getting his ass beat in a traffic stop. It all could have been prevented if you would have held someone accountable, you know, and there's a long legacy in history of this. And so I know what's going to come. I know what's going to happen. I know all the Facebook posts that are going to, we're going to talk about and be frustrated by. And it's just all just so I'm just so over it, man. I'm just so frustrated by it. And um, it's just like, it doesn't really matter how innocent we are in these situations. It just doesn't. Um, you could be sleeping in your bed at a location that nothing wrong is happening in and you can be killed and nothing happens. I, I, I do want to point out super quick Mike Miller's comment, which I think is very interesting because I did hear about this too. Uh, Mike Miller says, it was crazy how mid-press conference the AG of Kentucky was talking about there was a state of emergency declared. That means they already anticipated that this decision was trash and they know what's going to happen. Go, get a, go ahead, Garrison. No. I just have, you know, one quick thing to add um, to what Michael said that was very frustrating for me watching the um, the broadcast today, um, which is that this in some ways I do wish that there that there were no charges brought. And one of the reasons why, OK, is because obviously it's disrespectful to Brianna, the fact that they're saying that these surrounding neighbors were more valuable in some way or more harmed than the woman who actually ended up being killed 
in her sleep, okay? But then the second thing is that they're hiding behind this wall of continued prosecution. So, you know, in the in the interview, I mean, in the in the broadcast about it, they're asking, the, the news anchors are asking all these questions about, can you shed light on like, you know, the members of the grand jury, like, was it diverse? Can you tell us more about the details of the case? And his response is over and over and over again, well, it's ongoing prosecution. And so I can't really shed those details right now. Otherwise it will, cause a fog over the prosecution. And the thing that's so frustrating to me that I, you know, that obvious is obvious to any prosecutor or anybody looking at this case is that it's starting out at the lowest level of felony. The only place it can go is down, guys. Like if you're charged with first degree murder, you can be, you know, charged with a lesser and lesser included crimes. Well, any lesser included crime for first degree reckless um, wanton endangerment is going to be a misdemeanor and a misdemeanor for Brianna Taylor's life. Like, do you under, like, it's so ridiculous. It's so painful to see the lack of value that's put on that. And they're basically just going to wait out, you know, all of the anger that we have, all of the protests that we have, they're going to try to wait it out so long that we're going to lose our, you know, steam, they think, right? Hopefully we don't. And then they're going to resolve the case and however it is resolved. And all those questions that we had are going to be unanswered because we'll have moved on to the next victim or something like that. And it's just so insane to see it play out and to see how in my mind, they're using this charge, this pending charge as a cloak for true questioning and getting down to the details about how this prosecution is actually being handled and how those, um, those charges were determined. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, I'm like, I'm really frustrated in that I'm tired of being frustrated. I'm tired of being like outraged. I'm tired of like, you know, every single one of these from, I mean, you know, we're still waiting to see what happens to Ahmaud Arbery, right, in his case. Um, but it is so typical. What I mean, this outcome is so painfully typical that that has become the frustration for me, that even when they went through the trouble of getting a no-knock warrant, and then they served that no-knock warrant after midnight, and then they started shooting up the place with their no-knock warrant after midnight, and now six months later, they come here and they tell us that they actually carried out the no-knock warrant after midnight with a knock and announce. Like that's the justification. They justified the killing of Breonna Taylor and the fact that they shot her boyfriend by saying, we actually announced ourselves. So when we bust down the door in the middle of the night and someone who had the right to defend themselves started shooting at us, we then had the right to kill them. And so like that for me is so infuriating because it defies logic. It makes no sense. But the, the very real, uh, the, the very real, uh, I guess, reality is that it doesn't have to make sense. It, they don't have to come up with a legitimate reason for why our lives are devalued we don't matter precisely because we were never intended to matter.
Breonna Taylor's life was never intended to be significant. That's why they described her as a suspect on the news. It was a fleeting passing thing. Like there's a shooting and there's a woman and some suspects, even though they were not suspects. You know, something that I learned from Simone earlier, she's been on these calls almost all day talking about this, is that when, when these kinds of raids are supposed to take place, there it is, is the law for an ambulance to be out in front of the place where they're doing the raid. Like they're supposed to, because they know it might get violent, someone might get shot. So there's supposed to be an ambulance there waiting to take injured individuals, whether it's a cop or whether it's the actual people in there, they're supposed to be able to take them to get medical help. There was no ambulance there. And it's because they never intended to say, they, they knew, okay, these people are the kind of people that we can off and no one will care. And, and so it's just, it, I'm, it's just so typical. And, and I can't imagine how many young black men and women have been assaulted by police officers, assaulted by the system. And all the attorney general, all the DA, all the police chief has to do is say they did something to justify it. And if it wasn't six months and a global protest that was sparked from her death, we'd probably say, well, they did something to they did something to deserve it, and we move on. And and, and so, um, I I just want to say very clearly that this place isn't for us. I'm actually tired of saying Black Lives Matter. I'm tired of saying that because the truth is Black Lives don't matter, and that's what we really need to say. And if they want to take issue with that, they can. But the fact is that Black Lives don't matter in America. And I'm tired of trying to like twist it to say we do matter because they don't believe that either. So just start telling the truth. Black lives don't matter. Deal with it. Find a way around it. Move somewhere else if you need to. But that's the reality that we are living in. Yeah, I think to just continue off of what Garrison is saying about showing how um, their lives don't matter by how black lives don't matter. Part of that shows in the way of how this narrative is kind of being created in response to Brianna, her boyfriend, and even the, the people who were witnesses in the apartment itself. Because when you, like Garrison said, when you think about the story and how it's being told, chronologically, like it, it actually doesn't make any sense. Because when her boyfriend, um, and and Brianna hear the banging on the on the door. Uh, there there are no um, criminal records that either of them have. So the 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 reason for them to have their gun out in response to shooting a cop doesn't even match their description. It doesn't match their history. There there is no criminal record. There is no history of violence. There is no history of reckless behavior toward people around them or to officers. And so the only logical explanation for her boyfriend having the gun out is that he was unaware of who was at the door banging on it. And, and I think that 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 benefit of the doubt is, is never told from the perspective of the victims of police shootings. Why would a man who has no history of, of shooting, of acting violent, of acting recklessly, 
somehow ignore the calls of a police officer who claimed to have said their their title over and over in the middle of the night choose to just say bump that i'm going to off an officer for no legitimate reason right the the more news reporters looked into the story they realized that brianna and her ex-boyfriend hadn't been together for for a very long time right there there was no evidence to show based off what I'm reading right now, no evidence to show that he was even living with her, which is also part of the concern that I'm not even fully understanding. Why, if the cops had done their homework in the same way that the news reporters had, the same way that these uh, uh, reporters had done, they would have known more about the people that they're claiming to go bang on the door for. And what also is troubling is that even the black and white neighbors are saying they didn't hear anyone call or yell out officer multiple times. There was one man who said that he might have heard an officer say the word police once in the midst of all of the banging and, and shooting and explosion. He said he might have heard the officer claim his presence once. And that I like the more you think about it, the more frustrated you get because it's like, well, wait a minute. Their stories aren't adding up. If you're claiming, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you're claiming to have a no-knock warrant, then what is the point of banging on the door, screaming multiple times, police were here, police were here? I, I don't understand the, the, the thought process there. And I think just the more you continue to think about how they're trying to, to piece this story together, the more frustrated you get. Because it's like, well, wait a minute, the actions of what you're saying don't match up to the response that we were seeing from the people in the room. It, it just, it doesn't make sense. They would have opened the door if they heard the cops saying it multiple times because there was nothing in Brianna's house for her to hide. So what, what reason would there be for the guy to pull out the gun? There's nothing in there that would have been incriminating. And I think that part, that narrative never gets told. It, it's just a matter of, well, bystanders in the way of whatever happens, cops are still fine. And that I think is part of the most frustrating parts of this story. I, I have a question for you, Simone. I don't know if you can answer it, but I have questions about like legally what, I guess I'm wondering like in like when people who are, and oh, Nick, you are also a lawyer. When people who, <laughs> when people who know the law are talking about this, what sort of charges do you guys think would be reasonable for this? Because I, when I listened to the, when I listened to the podcast that reporters that they did that broke down how this all played out, it was very different than the story I had initially heard. the The story I had initially heard was that they went to the wrong house and the person that they were looking for was already in custody. And so they didn't even have a warrant to enter Brianna's house. They were at the wrong place. And then when I, when that reporter broke it down on the daily, she said that they, they had been essentially following around Brianna's ex-boyfriend for a long time. And, and I guess they thought they had reason to suspect that her house was one of his like where he was doing his drug dealing. And so they had a warrant to enter that, to enter that home. And I'm just, I guess I'm trying to figure out like, cause it, 
I guess what all I can think is that it seems like things fell apart, like right where what Adrian was saying, when they they knocked, we know that they knocked and banged on the door because both the ex both both her boyfriend and the cops say that. But the boyfriend says he did not hear them say police. So he didn't know who was there. And so he started shooting. And so I guess I'm wondering like what I just don't really know what is supposed to happen if, if I'm making sense. Cause it, it doesn't like the more I read about it, the less black and white the situation seems, it doesn't seem the same as the other situations of police killings that we've been talking about. And so I'm just wondering like, this doesn't feel like enough, but I don't know what is reasonable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I will say this. I've heard people disagree on whether the all three of the cops should have been um, arrested and charged. And um, part of that is because I believe it was Detective Hankison who went around to like the back or something. And he is basically the one that caused um, there to be like the direction of the shooting to happen in Brianna's direction in some way. And so I have heard people disagree about that, like reasonable, like reasonable people who say like, actually they didn't, they, they, it wasn't their fault. I think what is most disappointing though, in this situation is, I mean, kind of like to our original point, like obviously there are, there, there is nuance to like these cases. And once you get all the documentation and stuff, you know, we don't even have all the documentation for the case. But one thing we know for sure is that they just charged somebody for endangering neighbors when they killed an entire woman. Right. One thing we know for sure is that like, yeah, they heard banging on the door, but that's pro there's a difference between a knock and announce and getting into the apartment. Like they have to use like their ramp, whatever the battering ram. the battering ram to get into the apartment. So that's not a knock. That's a I'm getting into your space. Right. So like a knock and announce is knocking, announcing and then proceeding to enter. And so that's a different, you know, set of facts. And I think one thing that is definitely like, you know, we're talking about even in the legal space, um, even outside of the legal space and definitely within it is the brokenness of our system that no knock warrants even existed, that it would have allowed for any of this to happen. Um, I mean, I would say that I definitely don't agree with the charges that were brought. Um, I, a lot of people don't agree with what, how it was handled legally. Um, yeah, there's some nuance there, but not enough to get away from the fact that they had the wrong information, that they were apprehending a woman who I, I believe that their probable cause was like some package that came to the house or something like that. Like that is, I mean, she could have been getting t-shirts. She could have been getting, you know, winter socks or her bathing suit. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been anything. And so for them to just say, oh, that makes her a suspect. No, you, like you get packages at your house. 
And so I think it does require us to, to look several layers down if you want the absolute best and fanciest like analysis of the situation. But I think a cursory look at it, it screams inequity no matter how you look at it. And I think we're seeing that from the fact that Brianna, then first of all, they arrested Kenneth. Like, do we remember that when he yeah. they arrested, they, they had the nerve to kill this man's girlfriend and then arrest him. And I believe one of the charges was like attempted homicide or something, right? Like, like it was ridiculous that they could do this and cause this man this deep trauma of killing his girlfriend and turn around and arrest him like they didn't bust up into his house with a warrant that, that they should be embarrassed that they ever were fulfilling. You know, so it's there are so many layers here. Um, but I will say say that they I I do not agree with how it was handled. And I think that there are layers in how that might be handled and what the fullest extent of the law should be, etc. But in terms of analyzing this objectively, I don't think that these charges match even the best case scenario for the other side. I, don't, I still don't think that these match up. They don't align. And we see clearly that Brianna and Kenneth's life was, was not valued nearly as much as those neighbors were who weren't even involved. Like, can we just get to talking about what happened between the two parties here, Brianna and her boyfriend and the cops? Like that's, those are the, those are the real parties here. And yet somehow we've expanded this case beyond them and, like, like I said, I think it's just a ploy to to avoid questions. But yes, yeah. and I do think it's it's important to acknowledge that like they've admitted wrongdoing of the cops. Like, like yeah. to charge a cop um, should maybe should have at least been all cops. If anyone else is shooting, like all of the cops should have at least been charged with wanton endangerment. That's an admission mm -hmm. that they did something wrong, right? And so like, I certainly resonate with what you're saying, Esther, that like, this seems like something else should have happened because, or some other charge should have been made because at the very least they're admitting we were reckless, right, Nick's like, we were, we, we were shooting and we probably shouldn't have been shooting the way we were shooting. And so in the, in the way that they've even tried to twist it, the kernel of their own indictment is present there, right? Like the seed of their own misconduct is present, even in the way they tried to reframe it. Yeah, I think that part's so interesting to me when you start to look at that, because basically is what they're saying is, we're fine with the murder if the murder happens within the, the construct of, of only the people in that apartment being shot. When, when, they, when they bring this charge of wanton endangerment, they're like saying like, we were okay with Breonna Taylor dying, but we're not okay with, you know, police getting a little too far out of their, you know, situation that's at hand, which is like, wait, you know, you're, is what, you're, what, you're, what you're saying to us is that a cop can come with this warrant and then kill the people involved in the investigation. But if, you know, and we'll, we'll hold them accountable if a little bit gets like just right out of this box. And it's like, no, no, this is what people are saying in these communities that we don't feel safe when we interact with police. And police are just saying like, it doesn't matter because if we say you were safe or you were harming us, then we're gonna have the right to take your life 
arrest your um, boyfriend when he shoots at us. And like, and that's the, the funny thing is we just saw what last week that they, they gave the settlement of $12 million to Brown Taylor's family. Literally, like, why would you settle for $12 million if you didn't do anything wrong? Why would you change the law in Kentucky of these no-knock warrants to say we're not going to do these anymore if you were serving them properly? Like, if you were do, I don't understand how you can you know, do the, the wanton endangerment. You can give money, you can change laws and then be like, well, but they didn't do anything wrong. Why would we indict them? It's like, no, they did things wrong. That's literally what you're saying. But you're saying that your group, your your boys, your police are able to get away with literally murder because they're cops. And that's, it's literally, if we're serving this and, and someone made the point there too, the cops that served the warrant weren't even the cops doing the investigation. They didn't even know what was going on. They didn't really know who they were looking for. I believe there were five warrants that went out in this case um, that they had the options of, of different places. I mean, it's just like I, thing after thing after thing where it's like, no, these things are not right. And, and we say like, why do we want to abolish? And it's like, because when we see obvious injustice, you don't care. You just, you just justify it. You don't bring justice, you bring justification, and then nothing happens to the cops, and we just move forward. Like, oh, we fired the one little, the rotten apple, and we, you know, keep going. It's like, well, what about the detectives? What about the system that's allowing us to keep? I also keep want to add, time? just briefly. I just looked this up. Every law, like laws, are different. They vary from state to state. But I just looked up the Kentucky statute for reckless homicide, which is what happened at the very least, Brianna mm -hmm. Taylor. And guys, it's a class D felony as well. And so it wow. isn't like they wow. literally looked at the statute. It's the same exact punishment. Even if you're saying, oh, we don't want him to be punished that much, blah, blah, blah. It's the same punishment. Jeez. They literally just decided not to honor Breonna Taylor as a victim of this crime. Mm. That is literally what they decided to do. Wanton endangerment, reckless homicide, same level of punishment eligibility. And they literally just decided to say, you know, Brianna, you know, it, it was a situation with you. Uh, we're not even gonna, we're not even gonna get into that. We're gonna give these other people in an apartment that were not even hurt. We're not even affected. We're gonna honor them by making them victims on this case. And we're not even gonna acknowledge Brianna. Like I, they didn't even have to leave the class of punishment they were already bent on. They didn't even have to leave that and they decided not to do that. I just want everybody to know that. Someone needs to write that because that's like the take that feels to me like the very, the most important piece of information I've heard on this. So I hope that you're sharing that. I'm, I'm also curious as to, and I don't know if, if Nixon's phone, I know we're kind of putting you guys in the, in the seat here, but you know, yeah, you all the experts regarding me. Um, what is the difficulty? And we see it in this instance where the, the two cops claim that they didn't have their body cameras, which I think is an issue in and of itself. But other reporters are saying that the other officers did have their cameras that were there. And so I'm I'm con I'm concerned as to why is that, or if it is being looked into a bit more as to uh, obtaining the access to police camera footage, why is that so difficult for people to get access to? And more specifically in this instance, if the cops didn't do anything wrong, 
wouldn't they immediately release the footage to exonerate themselves? And I think that is also part of the things that is 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 making it very unsettling for me because in other instances where they felt justified and obviously we would disagree, the footage is there. It's shown. But in this particular instance, it's either they are being inadequate in their job, they're being reckless or just abhorrently violent. I'm concerned as to why that conversation of wait a minute, the proof is right there on this body camera. Why why are we not being able to look into that bit a bit more? Yeah, I, you know, that, that's a good question, Adrian. You know, the whole conversation around body cameras just in general has always been really frustrating, perplexing, and amusing to me because, um, you know, when, when we always talk about you know, police reform. And, and so body cameras was like the hot reform topic. And what got me kind of nervous about that was when I started people seeing people broadly adopt that and say, oh yeah, we should get body cameras. It's like, well, I'm seeing people advocate yeah. for body cameras that I know don't want these killings on footage. You know, like I know that. So like you, you start seeing Republicans talking about body cameras. I got a little nervous. And so I think... What's weird about it is, um, so in this particular case, you know, there's conflicting reporting on this, but there's some reporting that suggests that actually one of the three officers actually did have his body camera. I think it just wasn't on. And another one of them had like a body camera mount, but the camera wasn't like on the mount. He just had a mount on his person. So it's just like, that's confusing. And we have these situations, not just this situation, but you've heard of situations where, you know, you're in a jurisdiction where cops are supposed to have body cameras. Um, and then it's just like, oh, but the cameras weren't on. And my thing is like, oh, well, right. so why, why the heck do they have them if the cameras have to be on? And y'all keep saying it's supposed to be on, but if it's not on, there's no punishment for it. So like that, that doesn't make any sense. And, and then the other thing that was weird was that, you know, there was this trickle out of information around if one of the three of them or other officers on scene had body cameras, because initially the chief of police said, well, in this jurisdiction, we don't have to wear them or, or it's not required to have body cameras. And it's like, but clearly you all use them. So it's just like, it's, it's purposely vague so that you can never pin them down on anything, I think, in my opinion. And, you know, as it pertains to getting the footage and, and we saw some of this play out in the Daniel Prude case in, in yeah. Rochester because the body camera really didn't get out until a FOIL, a Freedom of Information Law request was submitted by Daniel Prude's brother's attorney. And so that's what's crazy about this is that you oftentimes you have to get your own private, you know, criminal defense lawyer that sort of knows the way to navigate this to try to, you know, file paperwork to get to this kind of evidence because if they don't have to share it, they're just not going to. You know, I mean, what was it like uh, over well over a year af after Laquan McDonald was killed that yeah. the Chicago finally released the footage, which clearly showed what happened, which was clearly contradictory to what they've been saying for months. So it, it's just like, you know, there's this push to say, oh, yeah, let's get the cameras, let's get the cameras. And then there's all this conflicting um, protocol around how they're used, if they're used. Um, and there's never really seems to be any um, 
you know, penalty or corrective action when they're not being used because we've also seen situations where the body cam or a camera on the vehicle is on and then you hear cops say, turn the camera off. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, well, why they want the camera turned off? Oh, no, it was all fine. You know, everything was cool. It's like, yeah, so cool that they didn't want it videotaped. So it's just like they get every benefit of the doubt, which is just super wild to me. And it's it's really always going to be that way. And and so, um, which is why this whole conversation around reform versus abolish, you know, gets more and more trivial because reform just seems more and more impossible because you 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 we're continuing to depend upon the people who are incentivized in the system continuing to operate the way that it is to change the way the system operates. It's never going to happen. Like, why would it happen? You know, that just doesn't make any sense. It, there, in no other scenario would we bank on, you know, someone who's benefiting from the kind of protection that these folks are benefiting from. What incentive do they have to change it? I mean, and, and, and it's up to them to change it. And, and we just, you know, protest to them to say, hey, do your job. They're never going to. So um, unless there's a serious conversation about completely uprooting the way that the entire system works, it may get marginally better here and there. I mean, there's some instances of that, but it's not going to, you know, change really for the the kind of transformative change that we want, Uh, whether it's body cameras, whether it's, you know, abolishing these no-knock warrants, all these, you know, all the different stuff when we've talked about these different policy shifts, you know, because... You know, by the time that they give in to one of those things, they thought of five other ways to protect themselves. That's yeah. not always happens, mm-hmm. you know. So they're currently figuring out what new technology or mechanism or loophole can we bank on after we kill someone so that we can throw these folk a bone and, and give them two or three of these things that don't really matter anyway. That's just how it always happens. Yeah, even when it comes to FOIA requests, I mean, that's why you know, Michael's so correct when he says you have, you need a private attorney to kind of go through that process with you because even getting stuff through a freedom of information, um, act request can be a pain because it has to be described in a certain way. It has to be articulated in a way where the agency doesn't view it as being overly burdensome to go through all of the documentation and get it to you. And if you think about it, you know, one of the hot topic conversations on body cam footage is the very simple amount of it all like just the existence of existence of it all where do we put it all how do we store it how do we mm-hmm. sort through it all this stuff it's a constant debate in in terms of financial burden and in terms of time you know capital to go through it all and so you know yeah people honestly body cam footage is great when you can get it when you can get it right like it is so awesome when you can find it and then the other times it's just like you're sitting there at basically a barrier oh we you we can't find that footage from that day or we can't we don't uh we don't know uh how to access our cloud is down or whatever like there's so many like logistical logistical barriers to this information that does exist even within the legality of acquiring that information. It's so telling that they don't view body cams as a a source of self-protection. 
Right, like if I was a cop, like I would view having a body camera as like, this is protecting me, right? right? So that when right. if somebody accuses me of something, I have proof that I did the right thing. Like the fact that they don't view it like that is so telling of just, this, I mean, just the fact that they're obviously not doing the right thing. Cause they should have jumped at that chance to have proof of, to have cold hard proof every single time you're accused of something that you did it right. Like you should have jumped at that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when it it, it 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 can be body cams or anything else that's done to communicate that a change is being made, that things are getting better. But just like what Mike and Simone were alluding to, this is this yeah. is a part of their strategy. Let's let's give these people a little bit to stop the protest, to make people forget and move on to the next thing. Let's satisfy them a little bit. And then when this happens again, we're also going to be prepared to keep doing the same dance over and over and over again. And perfect proof of that is literally how they uh, they banned no-knock warrants and they said they're going to commit to police reform. They did that, but they didn't provide Breonna with the justice that she deserved. So it's this very confusing thing of, well, just like what you guys were saying, you guys reacted as if you delivered justice, but when it was time to deliver it, you didn't do it. And that's on purpose. Like all of this is incredibly intentional. It's not by accident yeah. at all. And to me, in, in looking towards the future, it's just about we really need to keep the pressure on because they are counting on us to forget and to move on to the next distraction and to move on to the next thing. I don't care that... Brianna Taylor was on the cover of these magazines and and all these nice things are being said. When it comes down to justice being delivered, is that happening? That is how we truly honor her. So unless we're not keeping the button pressed and making sure things actually change, there's nothing else to talk about. There's nothing else to do except that. I couldn't agree more. What you just said, it, um, what you were just saying, mentioning the magazine covers and all of that, it just reminded me of this really great piece I read. I won't be able to find it, but just talking about um, talking about all the iconography that comes out of of all the victims of police brutality afterwards and how they become profitable to people in death, and it, I don't know, it just spurred a very scary thought in my mind that like. Black people dying at the hands of police, uh, not only does the justice system and the government and the legal system not seem to care very much, but it also is really concerning to think about how it is actually profitable for a lot of people. Like it's becoming a, a business in and of itself, right? Lots of different, lots of different people, individuals and artists, and also, I mean, you know, we've seen it. institutions and businesses and companies are in this pot of making money off of the aftermath of it. And that scares me a lot because we're, we're all, we're all happy to see, Oh, like we're talking about it. This is becoming, you know, it's becoming, it's becoming acceptable 
and, and honestly even expected to talk about this, to address this in whatever, wherever you can, whatever your role is, whatever platform you have. But also when you really think about it, a lot of those people doing that have very little incentive to actually do the work to stop it because they're also making money off of the fact that it keeps happening. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, Esther, I, I think what, what's also frustrating um it, it it all just kind of feels like this very superficial effort to make us like just feel heard right and then when we feel heard like our our emotions will kind of just calm down and then we can just go back to the status quo of of normalcy right and i read this this interesting thing on twitter where they talked about in the last few weeks how the support for black lives matter amongst white and, and hispanics have dropped between like 12 and 15% because they want to talk about this, the conversations of how the rioting and the law and order rhetoric that we see from the Republican side and from Donald Trump. And I think it really just shows that when all of those protests and, and that big riot that took place like in June or July, all of those people, particularly white Americans that fully became exposed to it, their willingness to fight the efforts against racism ends with simply hearing. And I think that once it goes any further than that, then they just kind of say, okay, we're going too far, right? Now the conversation that we've seen, it's it's shifting into something else. We're, we're not having the conversation of police brutality and cops killing black people. Now it's just, all right, you had your time of of expressing your grievances. Now you need to just like get back in order. You need to fall back in line. You need to stop being angry. And that I think it, it it's the most infuriating thing because I don't hear anyone talking about the fact that there there were plans of reforming police, abolishing police, defunding police. These conversations aren't at the forefront of topics anymore. Now it's just law and order. Now it's just condemning riots. Now we're just condemning the violence that we see in protests. But we're never, like these are all just symptoms of the problem that we were originally trying to address. And that it's it's like we can never have the chance to stay on task. There's all of these pivots, the, 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 the merchandise, people doing art online and the music, so many efforts that are being made of just these, these symbolic things. But it's like, how, how many times we have to show you all that like, th this isn't what we're asking for. Right. And then when we get frustrated and you see people get aggressive, then it's like, Whoa, my gosh, look at these thugs into the streets. And it's like, why is it that we can never just focus on the topic without you going in direct in the directions that we're not asking you to go into. And then you get frustrated at us for being frustrated. And it's like, it's this constant loop. Uh, and it, it makes any black person just feel insane. Cause it's like, we, we can never just stay on the proper subject. No, it's, it's very fair. And just like to make that point, you know, being in these conversations, I think when the system centers around whiteness, um, a conversation of Black Lives Matter is going to be a side topic. And it's, you know, continually treated that way. And I think that's what's really frustrating to kind of see and kind of, you know, people have been screaming lately about this. And it's like, why is this, why is this a side topic? These are, 
this is a system that's supposed to benefit the people within this this nation, not specific people that look a certain, you know, specific way. So thank you everyone for sharing your thoughts. Um, I know that today's been a tough day, but I'm just glad that we're all that we were all able to express our thoughts and just have that discussion. So we're going to pivot to the next topic, but I do want to shout out everyone in the chat right now. Mike, Curtis, Saba, Jose, we're really glad that you guys have been interacting, talking. Um, Denard, Shante, I, I, a couple of other people too. We're glad that you guys are able to join us. Um, of course, you can also listen to our show after the fact on our podcasts on Spotify and the Apple Podcasts. But before that, we still have a show to go through, and we're going to pivot to <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, recently, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at September 18th, uh, 2020, of course, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She was an American jurist who served as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States from 1993 until her death in 2020. She was nominated by President Clinton and was generally viewed as a moderate judge who was a consensus builder at the time of her nomination. She eventually became part of the liberal wing of the court as the court shifted to the right over time. Ginsburg was the second woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court after Sandra Day O'Connor and was the first Jewish woman to serve on the court. During her tenure, Ginsburg wrote notable majority opinions, including United States versus Virginia, Olmstead versus LC, and Friends of the Earth Incorporated versus Laid Law Environmental Services. And we've also brought in Amani. She's kind of cut out here. Let me move over. Uh, she's gonna also be here with us just to help us talk a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy and we're also going to be talking about what her passing means for the Supreme Court next. Of course, we don't want to gamify this too much, so we definitely want to recognize her and show her as much respect as we can. So, guys, what are your thoughts on this? But actually, before we ask, Amani, can you give us a little bit about your experience Knowing uh, or, or able, I, I, if I remember correctly, you're able to attend a lecture with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Can you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So thanks for having me back again. I was late, so I would have been here in the beginning, but here I am now. So you're welcome. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was overhearing you guys' discussion, Brianna Taylor, and it was very riveting. So like honestly, like you guys have been honest since day one. So thank you for that. Um. So RBG, notorious RBG, um, I saw her, um, I went to law school in DC and she came to my law school to um, have a quick lecture. Um, she was very tiny, very frail and, but had a very like loud and commanding, not a loud voice, but a very commanding voice. She commanded that whole room and was just talking about equal justice and equal protection under the law. Um, she was a huge proponent of women's rights and just a few that I found on Instagram, just a really good summary of what she did. Obviously, um, you know, in law school, you have to read some of her opinions, but 
there's a few things that she did for women, um, specifically the right to sign a mortgage without a man. Um, that's a really big deal in, you know, in terms of home ownership. Um, a few years ago, we couldn't um, sign our own mortgages, own our own homes um, without being married. Um, and I think that was a huge, um, a huge win for women and, you know, our independence and our equal protection under the law. Um, also the right to have a bank account without a male co-signer, the right to have a job without being discriminated based on gender, of course. And obviously the right to have, um, the right to be pregnant at work and to take care of your kids at work. Also, you mentioned the Virginia case. Um, she also, um, wrote an opinion for um, the military academy in Virginia for women to be admitted to that military academy um, in, what was that, 26? I don't know, it was when it, recently. So, you know, she did a lot of things for women and I think that's why it's such a hard hit, it hurts so much. And I think it especially hurts and I'm pivoting towards more of the politics side of it. It especially hurts because it, it feels kind of like a, a little bit of a sting because you have Roe v. Wade, you have all these awesome rights that we've won for women and we've progressed so much. However, with this new Supreme Court nomination that, to be quite honest, would, you know, probably will happen. Um, there's no filibuster now. Um, all you need is a simple majority um, to put it through. Um, and the Republicans have the majority until hopefully November. <laughs> um, you know, it's really sad to, to see because the, the, the justice is going to, the, the, the court's going to be packed um, in terms of conservatives who, you know, don't support women's rights to abortion and don't support gun control. Um, I think her name's Amy from Notre, she went to Notre Dame Law School, um, big proponent of pro-life um, guns rights and all that kind of stuff, who's probably the top candidate and most likely probably will get pushed through. So it's really, it's especially hurtful from a legal perspective, um, you know, um, having someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg being replaced by somebody much more conservative, um, probably the court will be much more conservative than it's ever been. Um, and that has a lot of implications for, for us in the future, for healthcare, for women's rights. So um, praying for her family, um, you know, her last words were that she did not want to be replaced before the election. People are not honoring them. So it, it's a sad moment, but we're thankful for all the years that she spent and honestly for pushing through for so long. I mean, when she came to law school, she literally had an ambulance follow her around. Um, that's how frail she was. She held on for a long time. So definitely thankful for that. So guys, for you, what are some of your thoughts on her legacy. We'll, we'll talk about uh, talk a little bit about that first. And again, thank you, Imani, for giving that giving us that great summary. Mm -hmm. So, so guys, what are your thoughts on on Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Well, first things first, justice, RBG, What's justice, that? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No, it's put, put some respect on put this some respect. No, I'm um, I mean, obviously, that's who she was. But I mean, RBG, you know, is notorious RBG. I mean, she literally stands for so much of the, I mean, she, for me, you know, RBG not only spoke on women's rights, but she was a class A example of how to, how to be in a space that doesn't actually 
acknowledge or affirm any of the ideas that you have or the experiences that you've had and how to create that space and to make the room for that conversation to happen kind of just regardless of what the momentum has been in the past. And I respect her so much for that. I mean, she, you know, I think most people here probably know, but she had some scathing opinions about Colin Kaepernick that were unpopular. Um, but, you know, RBG was not a black woman. RBG, it doesn't mean you have to be a black woman or a black man to understand that. I mean, Logan is a, is a great example. Um, but I don't expect for RBG to necessarily get every single thing right, you know? Um, she did what she could. Could she have, you know, she, she really moved in spaces and changed things um, so profoundly. And I respect her so much for that. And it's an immense loss to the legal field, the legal profession. Um, you know, we will mourn her for a really, I mean, the, the loss will be felt, you know, and I think one thing that I took away from it as well is that she is gone right at the time when people can still register to vote, people can still get involved. And I hope that we have the momentum it takes to um, have a new tomorrow. That's what I'll say. That's how I'll say that. Yeah, I'll, um, yeah, I'll start by saying, uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg, uh, just an amazing icon on the court. Um, you know, just a phenomenal legacy, uh, just everything that she stands for. Um, you know, first of all, just um, as a human, you know, I, I think one of the things that's been really difficult about this moment is that um, what's completely lost in all of this. And, you know, I ranted a bit on social media, which I do from time to time, probably more than I should. <laughs> but um, it's like, you know, we got the news that, you know, Justice Ginsburg passed and it was probably an hour later that, um, you know, Mitch McConnell was talking about how the seat's gonna be filled, you know? And it's just like, it's weird. Cause it's like, we should, we shouldn't expect anything more from, from him and from Republicans and definitely not from Trump. Uh, you, you know, Amani, you mentioned um, Justice Ginsburg's dying wish, which she uh, dictated to her granddaughter and President Trump's response to that is that her granddaughter's lying. And so it's just like how, like how subhuman can you be? And, and that's our president, you know? And so uh, a human being, a grandmother, a mother, a wife who was still grieving the loss of her beloved husband, um, an amazing jurist, um, a human um, has lost and it's an immense loss and um you know transitioning into sort of the political implications or the implications of the court um man i hate everything man i just so hate this like i'm so frustrated i'm so upset um there's really there's no upside like i've i've thought about it at like every little different angle there's nothing stopping um, you know, Mitch and his gang from, um, 
and, and, and Trump from jamming through somebody who's likely the complete 180 of everything that Justice Ginsburg stood for. That's what makes this, I feel like, even worse in, in many ways, um, which is in keeping with his commitment to try to, as much as possible, degrade everything that you know his predecessor, President Obama, stood for. That was That's basically his platform. And the thing that's most frustrating <clears throat> is that um, it just seems like these people never pay a price. They definitely don't pay a political price. They did, they did essentially the same thing in 2016. And um, everyone knew that uh, a Supreme Court justice pick was on the line. And, you know, Hillary didn't win. You know, we, we didn't vote. And, and you know, so this the, the thing that we always go back to in saying elections have consequences, they do. They have long lasting consequences. And the fact that, you know, Trump is now essentially going to be able to fill three Supreme Court seats in a four year period. That's insane. Uh, is crazy. It's it's super insane, and and it's just like, um, and now like right on the heels of potentially, hopefully, getting that dude up out of there, and maybe getting back the Senate, um, one of the seats that we were expecting would be next up to be filled is going to likely be filled by him, and you know, all these. It's just it's interesting to me that you know. In the diversity and inclusion fields, last thing I'll say, you know, one of the one of the big things that came sort of out of right field um, was this whole push for like diversity of thought, which I think if if we're if you're truly in belief of that concept is a good concept, but um, conservative professors in particular on college campuses who were scared about uh, campuses getting too liberal started pushing for. Well, what about us? What about our perspective? And we need diverse perspectives and blah, 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 blah. Those same people see no issue with now essentially six people out of nine people agreeing on the most critical things that uh, come up as hot topics in when you're thinking about issues that could make it to the court. They see no problem with that. Who cares about diversity of thought? Who cares about, you know, having some sort of balance perspective on the highest court of our land uh, so that different viewpoints that exist within our diverse eclectic country can be represented on that court. Um, the Supreme Court died with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is dead. Um, and whether the response is court packing, if the Democrats get the Senate back and Joe Biden wins, which I would be fine with on some degree, but every action has a reaction. And, and there's been this course that the Supreme Court has been on at least since 2016 towards it just becoming the third partisan wing of our government when it's supposed to be the one nonpartisan stronghold that checks our government political system that's out the window. It's another political body. We'll continue to have razor thin margins on confirming justices probably for the rest of our lifetimes. There's no going back. The Supreme Court's dead. 
Uh, and that's really sad uh, as a litigant, um, as someone, you know, for those of us who, in law, who are in law school, who uh, were excited to read some of these great seminal foundational cases that built our, uh, our legal field. Um, it's now going to be the place where folks just try to make a law that fulfills their worldview. And it's going to be a clash of worldviews. And, you know, in 20 years, there'll probably be like 20 some justices on the Supreme Court because it's just <laughs> going to be it's just going to be a tit for tat. That's all it's going to be now. Uh, that's the only thing that I can see coming forward unless, you know, Democrats just kind of like sit back and let it happen, which could also happen because they never fight back, generally speaking. So, yeah, I'm really sad. I'm going to mute myself now. I was going to say, I was just about to um, ask about that. What do you guys think of court packing? I personally just think that it's a slippery slope. Um, it's a short-term solution and it will politicize the bench. And I don't think it's ever, the bench is ever meant to be politicized, but there has been a lot of debate even within the justices about how not to create, um, uh, not to have um, political leanings but I think that we've already, that's already been so far gone um, because of the fact that just by the mere fact that we call them liberal and conservative wings, you know, the way we align and our, our, our voice and our opinions are liberal or conservative as if there's no middle ground. Um, Justice Kennedy, who retired, and I don't even know why he retired, <laughs> and, you know, that was another Supreme Court justice that could have stayed. He's young enough to stay. And he decided to retire. And that's why Brett Kavanaugh got uh, confirmed and pushed through. You know, he was notorious of being kind of that middle man who was able to split back between the quote unquote liberal and conservative wing. And now you have people who are on the bench who, you know, are squarely in their corners. And, you know, I, I couldn't see a swing vote at all um, at this point. Um and like I was saying earlier, I think it's just really sad right now to see, hopefully, and like just having some kind of hope, hopefully that these attorneys, you know, understanding the law, understanding that you need to be as objective as possible and, you know, rule based off of precedent and not based off of your feelings or personal beliefs and emotions. I hope that they remember that. However, um, I, I, I hear, and I don't want to bring religion into it too much, but you know, I hear that the new um, justice that prob probably will be confirmed, Amy um, Barrett or something like that, you know, she's a religious woman, you know, very religious, and she has been quoted on record saying that she would, um, you know, that you should rule more with your conscience, your faith-based conscience, and I think that you know is going to be a concern for me. I think that she's going to be questioned on that, um, whether or not, you know, I don't think religion matters in a sense, but if you're using it to influence your beliefs on the bench, I think it's wrong. Um, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, first of all, 42 days to confirm somebody, they're really pushing it at this point. And I don't even know if it's going to be a thorough confirmation hearing. You know, the judiciary has to hear it too. And they have to go through all that investigation and I heard somebody say, like, when you when you get on a federal bench, you know, they they knock on the neighbor, your neighbor from when you were three years old. There's a lot of investigation that happens and you're going to do that in 40 days. I don't even think that it's going to be a thorough investigation of whether or not this person is qualified. And I think that alone should deter anybody. You know, with Obama, you had 
uh, 10 months until the November election. And then he waited 31 days until he com he, he even nominated with someone because he respected um, Justice Scalia. Um, I just, I think that they just don't care at this point and they're playing a political lawn game. And Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, they are the spawn of the devil. That's all I have to say. So. <laughs> I, I have, I have qu a question and then I have some thoughts. Do they not have until the end of the year or to, or until like it, since he'll still be in office after election day, can this process not go through until he is actually out of office in January? So, in January? So quick thought on that. That's a really good question. So I think there are a couple reasons why they want to do it before November three. Um, as you all probably know, the election in Arizona is a special election. Uh, for the person who replaced John McCain. And so if the Democrat senator, uh, I, th I think it's Mark Hunt, the Democratic Senate candidate, if he wins, he actually gets sat immediately. And so that would make the margin 52-48. We have heard, and <laughs> uh, you know, don't even bet a dollar on the word of Susan Collins and uh, Murkowski, but they've both come out and said that they would not uh, support a Supreme Court nominee until uh, the next president is inaugurated. And so they've taken out saying they've confirmed someone during that lame duck period after the election, let's say if Trump were to lose. So that now makes it, um, you know, it's like 50-48 and they need 51. Pence could break the tie and make it 51. But the thought process is if Trump were to lose uh, the November 3rd election, which we're banking on, and let's even say that they were to lose the Senate majority, it'd be hard for them to justify in that lame duck period between November three and the end of the year, pushing someone through. Um, because what the, the precedent they're relying on right now is that um, you know Trump and the Senate majority are of the same party. And so if they lose that precedent during that lame duck period, um, either by Trump um, losing the presidency or them losing the Senate majority or both, then they, <sighs> Moscow Mitch probably would still do it, but it'd be, it'd be a, a much harder sell for them to make. Um, and they would probably, I, I mean, if that were to happen, like Trump were to lose and they were to lose the Senate majority, maybe somebody like Mitt Romney would say, Hey, look, I, I'm not going to participate in this anymore, even though he's come out now and said he, he, confirm a good nominee before November 3 now. So I actually think their only real shot right now, um, assuming Trump ends up losing, which they're banking on, is to ram it through as quick as possible before the election because it could get really murky and complicated for them after the election if they don't do it now. Okay. And it's 50, they don't need the 60 majority. They just Maybe need 51. 51. The vice president can, he's the president of the Senate, can break the tie and make it 51. They actually used to need 60. They did. <laughs> you know, they, I think Mitch changed that. What is it? A nuclear option or something like that. Like, and then they don't have a filibuster anymore, which was the Democrats fault. Right. Harry Reid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that was for like lower court federal judges because they were yeah. they were blocking all of Obama's federal court appointments. Right. Like, and so mm -hmm. he removed it for that. And then Mitch said, well, since you did yeah. that, 
I'm going to remove it for the Supreme Court as right. well. And then it was over. Right. So okay. <laughs> I read a lot about filibuster yesterday. Anyways, um, <laughs> I had another question. Oh, the other question I had was about, I guess I'm wondering about the certainty that we have that like the courts are now like too, like they're too far gone. They're never going to go back to what they were supposed to be, which was supposed to be sort of this apolitical check on the other branches. I guess I'm wondering, like we've seen with some of the, conservative judges, including Kavanaugh, like some, they don't always go the way that we expect them to. Like we've seen that pretty recently, like in the Curtis Flowers case, Brett Kavanaugh was, um, I think, support of the majority decision that there was racial, pro um, they were using race as a determinant for the jurors. And then we saw that in the, um, the case about um, transgender and LGBT people in the workplace from Justice Roberts. So I guess I'm wondering, maybe those are just two exceptions and I'm just not aware of everything else that's happening. But I guess looking at some of those things, I became a little bit more hopeful that maybe we can still count on some of these, non, like some of these Supreme Court justices to uphold their actual role, which is to interpret the law as it's written and not necessarily base it on your own conscious or feelings about it. So I'm just curious, like, why do we feel so certain that that is, that's just, that's never going to happen again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that to your point, there have been several disappointing justices from both sides that have sat on the bench, people thought they were going to go one way, and then they end up saying something totally different and going a different way. And, um, in addition to that, you know, Imani and Mike know this really well from law school, but there are like concurrences that are written, right? Where people don't totally agree with why people got, why the court got to a certain decision, but they agree with the final outcome. And so there are kind of like those nuances. I, I personally don't think, I'll say this. I think that it is very possible to put a judge in place that isn't there to look at things objectively and to do their diligence as a nonpartisan um, member of the judiciary. I think that's very possible. But my hope is that all of the judges on the Supreme Court will maintain their, you know, clear thinking, objectivity. I know that like, you know, they definitely not, they've not always made perfect decisions and all that stuff. But I am hoping, like, that's honestly the only hope that we have is that they might do that. Um, I think it's just really scary to know that the lens that they're viewing life life through is so partisan, you know? And so I think that that's where it gets really scary when we start talking about some of the new prospective judges that basically said, like, well, I mean, yeah, I see the world through my own opinion instead of, you know, kind of leveraging this like legal analysis. And then legal analysis is also nuanced. You know, people have different reasons for why they, they think certain things. There's different ways of analyzing the law. I, I don't think I'm not quite where Michael is, where I think it's doomed, but I understand the sentiment because it is definitely a scary thing to have people who are basically saying like, I... I, I will just do whatever I want and whatever aligns with my religious affiliation. Like we're supposed to be a nation that's like 
founded on religious freedom. And yet here we are um, kind of using our religion to leverage these ideas in a, in a judicial capacity. Yeah. So I'll just say real quick, you know, um, so I, I think about it like this. I, I think about whatever the new court makeup is going to be sort of in threes. So you have your, your liberal, liberal wing now, quote unquote, of Justice Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Then you have your firm conservative block all the time of Alito, Thomas, and this new nominee, if it's this woman they're talking about, she's gonna be firmly in the pocket of conservatives on every thing. And so then from there, you have sort of three toss-ups on either side now, because uh, there've been times where, you know, Chief Justice Roberts has tried to in the spirit of sort of balancing out the court, um, you know, crossing over from the conservative block. The problem with those three toss-ups for the, the liberal ring is that all three of them have a conservative leaning. You know, it's Roberts, uh, Kavanaugh, and and um, okay. Gorsuch. And so um, in, every, in any particular case now, if you're th looking at it from sort of the progressive liberal perspective, you're going to need two of three conservative leaning justices to join the liberal justices, whereas it's going to be much easier for the conservative wing to say, well, we can, as long as no more than one of these three conservatives defect from our position, we win, you know? So the, the path forward is just much more difficult in any given scenario. And that's literally just to get a 5-4 decision, you know, on anything, to get like the just the razor thin and you know a lot of the situations you were just speaking about esther those were five four decisions and that was with having four firm progressive liberal liberal justices in rbg with kagan sotomayor and briar and we just need one now from another five and oftentimes could only get one and mm -hmm. so i just see it's just going to be really difficult i think moving forward unless there is really good precedent, some really good arguments, a really long established, you know, legacy of jurisprudence on a particular issue for much of the progressive uh, progress that's been made in the past, you know, 30, 40 years to hold up. It's just really gonna be difficult in my view. I have, I have more questions, but it's 825. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, I think. See, I have some more questions too, but we're just about out of time here for the show. I do want to say really quick that I appreciate everyone in the comments rocking with us again for another episode, and I do appreciate our top attorneys here: Mike, Simone, Imani for really just helping us understand. I think the, the Supreme Court is one of those branches that I don't think people understand as much. So we really appreciated you guys coming in and just helping us get clarity on our questions. I do want to point out that voter registration has surged this week. It was reported today after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Mm -hmm. So if that is any indication that means you need to vote. You need to join in on this wave. Okay, look, I saw a status today, Amani. 
Imani, we, we talked about this. I saw a status today. Someone was saying, I don't know if I want to vote. It's a lesser of two evils. But here's what it is. Voting affects even the conversation that we're having right now. Down the line, it trickles across our entire country and our entire political system. It's essential that you register, that you vote. Garrison, Simone, if you guys want to talk super quick on your experience with early voting, that would be great just to kind of give everyone an idea of, of what happened and how that went down. Yeah, really highly encourage people. I know not every state has early voting, so early in-person voting, so I kind of want to acknowledge that at the top. But if you are in a state that allows you to vote early and in-person, go do it. You know, honestly, November 3rd is going to be a wild day. Like, you're going to see lines, like, like, like Jordan just said, voter registration is up significantly in almost every single state. So it's very likely that in your district, at your polling station, you're going to see a long line, which means people will very likely uh, <laughs> walk away. Um, you know, and so I, I went to vote early and in person with Simone and it was a breeze. We went straight through and filled out the ballot and turned it in. And I checked my little portal online and it showed me that I that I actually submitted my ballot and it I feel very confident that, yeah, that 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 my vote will count. And so, like Jordan said, it's so important. Like what we see happening in Louisville is because someone elected somebody who makes the decisions that we got today with this. Like Mitch McConnell is a senator, which means he was elected in Kentucky and now he's holding the country by the, you know, by, by, by the balls, essentially, to say that I'm, you're gonna do what I say do. I'm sorry to say that. I couldn't think of another word, honestly, and that's exactly what's happening. And so, like, elections matter. Just go vote, make your voice known. Uh, I'm apo I apologize if that was too crude. I thought you were gonna say go Nats, but I feel like what you chose <laughs> worked perfectly. It's worked, okay, worked great. I called him the spawn of Satan, so we're on the same level here. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going all I into. did not cut today. So, that was good. <laughs> so, so AU students, uh, please also vote. Talk to your VP of Diversity and Inclusion. He can also hook you up with resources on, on voting on campus. And, of course, the link he just shared. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into Affirmative Interaction. We're so glad you got to spend this time with us. Um, before we... And thank you, Amani. Thank you so much. Thank Sorry. you so much. Thank you so much. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hey, we might even do a part two because I think the Supreme Court discussion is really important right now. So we might just revisit that too. Thank you, Mike Miller, for another great suggestion. Thank you, guys. I'm your host, Jordan Smart. We're, we are Affirmative Interaction. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.